Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I personally think that it is time in today's day and age to rethink what intelligence actually is. It used to be back in the days, and it still kind of somewhat is, that IQ actually matters more than EQ, emotional intelligence over actual IQ, which is um, the brain's ability to think certain things, right? The numbers game, more or less. It it seems to be that if you can do math, science, and all those others and receive top marks, then you are somehow smarter and more intelligent than somebody else that doesn't receive those kinds of grades. And therefore, society thinks that you are more important than someone else, in society that doesn't receive that kind of uh, ability or ability, sorry, to uh, think that certain way. And the way society has, has been built up is it's discriminating against people that might not be so-called intelligent people, but that's simply not true. Everyone has a level of intelligence, but the educational system has made it such a way that they only want the smartest people available that perform well on certain tests. Doesn't matter if you want to be a doctor, doesn't matter if you want to be whatever it is, you have to perform extremely well on their IQ tests in order to get into a specific course. Here in Australia, you've got to do the uh, the HSC and receive top marks in order for you to enter into uh, university to study certain certain uh, academic degrees, certain bachelor degrees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They have a rank system, which I think is is a stupid idea. But then again, that is the society we live in. Dr. Rena Bliss is my guest today, and she's the Associate Professor of Sociology at Rutgers University. She's the award-winning author of Race Decoded by Stanford University Press and Social by Nature, again, by Stanford University Press. She's an expert on the social significance of emerging genetic sciences. Dr. Rena is a number of 
He's a member, sorry, of the Human Genome Synthesis Project known as GP Wright, as well as the Finding Your Roots Genetics and Genealogy Project, among many, many other things. And she has a brilliant new book coming out called Rethinking Intelligence by Harper Wave, which tells us what we should know about the new science of intelligence and how best to use that knowledge. In recent years, she has witnessed a drive to sequence people for genetic market markers associated with IQ. Meanwhile, the new gene editing tool, uh, CISPA, now prompt now promises to tweak our mind's capacity right down to our DNA code. Now, this conversation covers quite a few areas and we talk about the problem with the education system as a whole in allowing students to study certain things. But I think you guys are going to find this one really, really interesting. I know I certainly did. So if you do get something from this episode, don't forget to share it around and let all your friends know as well. Also, I've teamed up with the incredible team, Joel and Zach Perna, the brothers who created Slouch Potato. If you don't know who they are, go and check them out. Just visit slouchpotato.com. But they make the most comfiest and the incredible clothes Uh, The best clothes that I've pretty much worn to date so far. I love them. And you can get 10% off when you visit uh, the checkout and use discount code STORYBOX. That is STORYBOX. They've got a brand new uh, merch line out at the moment. They've got panda shorts, panda shirts, all kinds of great goodies there. And like I said, the clothes are absolutely amazing. So I know you guys are going to love them. All right, my friends. You know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Rena Bliss. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you here, actually, because intelligence is something that I've been very fascinated by for quite some time, actually. I don't think... I've been trying to figure out whether or not I'm actually an intelligent human being or (laughs) whether I'm not and I'm just trying to fake it or or anything like that. No, I'm just kidding. But I've read books by Dr. Daniel Goleman about um, EQ and and versus IQ and emotional intelligence and uh, those kinds of things. So I was very fascinated by this whole idea of rethinking intelligence, which we'll get into in in just a moment. Um, But can you share with me to start off with how you're feeling about the whole process of writing a book like this? I mean, it's no easy thing, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, um, writing books has been a really fun part of my job. You know, there's the teaching, there's the research, all of it has its kind of beautiful moments and everything, but I actually really enjoy writing books. So, um, so writing a book of this nature has been pretty much one of the, the bright spot, the bright spots in my day. And, um, the way that I do it is I, I just write a little bit every day. I'm kind of like a small bits kind of person. And, um, and so, uh, I feel like I've been in writing mode for for many years now, so it's kind of it's kind of old hat for me in a sense. But um, but writing, knowing that I am speaking to a wide international audience, is something else. It just feels very 
enriching. It feels rewarding. I feel like I'm, I'm not just writing something that some other scientists who are interested in the specific area of blah, 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 you know, are, are going to see, but rather all kinds of people. And I always think about, you know, having a great effect on the world, bringing knowledge to the world is something that, you know, you can kind of ask yourself, could you bring this knowledge to a 17 year old as I do in my classes, right? Cause I teach freshmen. Um, could you have that conversation with a 17 year old? Could you have that conversation with a 71 year old? Could you have that conversation with a 91 year old, you know, uh, you know, so, uh, or a person who's over a hundred, you know, and I think that the more that, that the answer becomes yes, the more gratifying it feels, you know, it's like knowing that, um, that everybody can have access to the information rather than just people who have PhDs and, you know, um, follow a specific line of research. Yeah. What, it's why really, really good. Sorry, I, I cut you off there. Didn't mean to. Um, why specifically the subject of intelligence? Well, I actually, I have a lot of... Um, personal interest in the subject from my own experiences growing up and from my own experiences with um, intelligence testing, with standardized aptitude testing, being scored and uh, being kind of told that intelligence was this one thing and then finding out through my research that it is totally something else, right? So I started out, you know, being just a, you know, little, little kid in LA in the eighties. I grew up in a, an immigrant community and, um, there were people from all over the world, people from, you know, everywhere pretty much, um, in my community. And most people didn't, you know, didn't speak English as their first language and, uh, most people were working, working people, like they had jobs that they had to do all day, sometimes all night. Um, my mom is from Indonesia, as I mentioned to you earlier, and uh, she had to work all kinds of hours. And uh, my dad was American and he actually um, is a, a New York transplant to um, the community that I grew up in. Um, he moved to Hollywood as a kid and, um, and, but, um, I lived in the house with my mom because my dad suffered from really bad addiction. He was an addict when I was born. He was an addict my whole life, but he, you know, had a lot of problems. And, um, so even though he was, if he wasn't on the street or he wasn't in jail, he was at our house and spending time with me. So he was in my life as like a daily thing. Um, but he, he wasn't like, he didn't sleep in our home and it was, you know, pretty much my mom, me. And, you know, I had a lot of babysitters and stuff like that. And I'm just telling you all this background information because basically, um, I grew up in a house where, uh, and in not just the house, this is like normal. This kind of story was just totally normal in my community. Um, I was in a house where there was no one to help me with 
homework assignments. There was nobody to help me with academics. There was no one to like help me learn how to do this or that. And, um, and yet I was being tested at my schools and I was being scored and placed and tracked according to my scores. And so, and this is again, what I experienced in my community. I was just an average kid in that set, in that setting. And the thing was, um, in this kind of immigrant setting, the immigrant parents who were there trying to really show up for their kids, they felt like education was everything to them. It was a way to get from point A to point B. It was a way to access the American dream. It was a way to like make it worthwhile that they had moved from whatever situation they had to leave. You know, most people had to leave. Um, and, you know, so it was just like, or it was, there was a reason to leave, obviously, and to come here and um, here being the U.S. And so uh, the parents really wanted us to test into gifted programs. So my first test was at five um, and I failed the test. So I didn't test out of my school to go to the gifted school because there was a school that was like the gifted school in my community. Um, and none of my friends tested into that school either. So no surprise there. Um, and then I did test eventually into my schools, um, within its own, you know, Paul's gifted program. So, um, I did get tracked for a better academic education. Um, but that came later and, um, and basically, you know, I, was told that I was about as good as my score. And every all of us kids were told that. Now, I have a lot of students now who are Zoomers and who tell me the same thing has happened to them and the same thing is going on right now. So it's like, you know, this it's sadly, this isn't just something that happened in the 80s. You know, this is something in the 90s. This is something that like happens now today. Um, and And so... You know, I just realized that like there was this all this weight being put on these scores. And yet so many of us were not set up to take these tests and to score high on the tests. So and the and the scores were the gateway to quality education. And some of the students, you know, who scored low would be put into special education tracks that failed them, you know? So it was really like that part of it was not fair at all. Um, but the crazy thing is that at the time, the science kind of backed it up because everything was focused on in IQ scores. And so it really was like, you know, this wasn't like schools doing something rogue or crazy. You know, the schools were just doing what the scientists said was true. And, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, your familiarity with like emotional you know, an EQ and emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. And um, there's also been, you know, a lot of research into multiple kinds of intelligence, right? Multiple intelligences. And, um, and so there was also like this shift going on at the time that like, you know, we can diversify our, our understanding of what intelligence all entails, right? But um, still like academics wise, like there, everything was based on this idea of, of there being an kind of academic type of intelligence. Intellectual intelligence was still this IQ thing. And so, um, and that was based on ranking you 
um, according to how you compare to people your own age. Not like finding out, did you have anyone help you with these concepts? Do you know anything? Do you have any cultural familiarity with the words that are going to be on the page at all? No, just like take the test, perform, and then see what happens, you know, and then we'll put you in a, a school that's like extra special and helpful to you, or we'll put you in a room where nobody gives you any academics and just like ignores you and sees you as like a behavioral issue or babysits you or, you know, ignores you basically. Um, and so uh, the other thing was that at the time, there was this um, idea that genetics was behind it, right? And unfortunately, as I, as I write about in my book, Rethinking Intelligence, there's a lot of genetics today, genomic research, the research that looks at the entire genome, right? And, um, and there, there's a lot that still says this, that like, you know, it's just your genes, you there's a genetic lottery, you're either a winner or you're a loser, you know, and we just have to figure out which one you are and then set you on that path, right? Um, and there are genetic IQ tests and there are all kinds of like, you know, kind of shady apps and things like that to like supposedly track you and help you track yourself or get tracked, right? Um, but like really back then, genomics the study of our DNA sequences and the relationships between those, those genes and everything, um, it, that was just getting off the ground. So there wasn't even any genomics back then. And um, since then, we have done all of this research and we found that this just isn't true. None of that stuff was true. So genomics really tells us the opposite. And I could tell you about that if, you know, if you think that that's interesting to your listeners, you know, there was a lot, a lot of questions that I have yeah. from that answer uh, yeah. that, that I want to sort of unpack. One of the things that I was very interested in is you, you mentioned that your dad was an addict uh, for pretty much a long time. My whole life. Your, your whole life. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, is there any distinction or any association with intelligence and addiction that you've looked at at all? I haven't looked into that. Um, there are people who do research into, they do, um, they look for genetic associations, AKA um, gene variants that are associated with both. Yep. And um, I think that that research is, is ongoing. It's underway. And, you know, there's not as much, um, there's nothing definitive but the problem with a lot of that research right now is that um, much of it takes intelligence as in terms of people's reported self-reported IQ scores. And so um, anytime you're just using one of those scores as to as, you know, as the representation of a person's intelligence, I'm going to say I'm going to flag it and say, like, that's that's problematic for the reasons I was just talking about, you know, yep. like there's a lot that goes into taking a test and performing well on a test. And there are actually a lot of sadly, you know, in the United States, I, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but probably there are these companies as well, but there are firms that, you know, coach people on IQ tests and on intelligence tests, et cetera, and try to get, you know, help people with a lot of money because they're very expensive services, you know, it's like help them get into these, you know, 
magnet schools or special schools um, that then feed them into top universities and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, addiction, obviously like, you know, there is, that's one of these things that I'm, that I'm saying is, is like an environmental factor that is not taken into account when you're looking at these scores. It's like, is a person, is a, is a, a student or even an adult, because we still use intelligence tests in hiring in, in, you know, job placement, employment, et cetera. And so, um, so yeah, it's just really interesting to think about how there's so much that's behind it and, and a person's own addictions, but also their parents, their caregivers, all of that could play into how well they perform on a test. Yeah. And it can also go the other way around. So you could have a really, really uh, smart individual that tests quite highly on IQ tests, and then they still struggle with addiction too because of cultural yes issues that go on and they're they're exposed to certain things or there might be a, a gene that say is uh more inclined to go towards that particular kind of addiction it's like it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting line of study i think and it's like you can't point it to one particular thing and say oh it's all intelligence fault it's not it's or this person that is struggling with addiction is less intelligent on on whatever case because it's I know a lot of people that do struggle with addictions and they're incredibly intelligent people on, on if you're looking at the IQ sphere as well as the emotional sphere and as well as the social sphere. So, you know, it's one of those things, but I'm interested in like from the very beginning, who are the ones that created these particular tests in the first place and who are they to say like just because you answer these questions it it suddenly means that your brain capacity is a lot more intelligent or smarter than say another person's because you can answer these questions correctly according to yeah. the people the the person there's a person who came up with the idea of intelligence testing and then there are the there are two people who came up with the IQ test that we still use, but it's been massaged through many different hands, many different scientists' hands. And so, um, so I'll, I'll just tell you about the person who came up with the idea in the first place, because his framework is, is at the base of today's intelligence tests anyway. So it's kind of like no matter who, you know, massaged it and who came up with the questions and whatnot, it's like the, the idea of, of, um, you know, ranking and comparing according to your, um, you know, to other people in, in your community or your peer group, et cetera. Um, just that whole idea that you need to rank IQ and compare you to others comes from Francis Galton, who was a, um, an early, early geneticist. He was the cousin of Charles Darwin. So he, um, he was basically family and, you know, close to his cousin and took that idea of genetics and then made, created a lot of science and meaning around it. Right. Um, but he was also the person who introduced the idea of eugenics. So the intelligence tests were supposed to identify, uh, less intelligent people so that you could eventually exterminate them. 
or you could do something with them to like, you know, yeah. basically get them, remove them from society or do something, incarcerate them, do something terrible to them. Right. Um, sterilize them, whatnot. And so his idea, and you know, I could go into that would be a whole long episode to talk about that story, but like, you know, he basically had very, very, um, unsavory politics and he was successful with it. And so for so many years after he introduced this idea of the intelligence tests and of the superiority of, in, in his own words, of white Europeans, upper class Englishmen, blah, 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 blah. You know, he had a book called Hereditary Genius. So you can see where this is going, right? Yeah. So um, his whole thing was just to like basically kill off anybody who was not a member of his own social group and class, you know, and it, a lot of it was class-based. It was race-based. It was class-based. It was gender. It was like all kinds of like, you know, horrible, horrible ideas. And unfortunately we've just taken this framework and we've kept it alive. And, you know, I would rather see it go but um, at the same time, I, I understand that there are there have been a lot of companies that have tried to create better intelligence tests, more sensitive intelligence tests. There are some that are one on one with a psychologist, you know, and so it's like that's a little different model. And, you know, but still this idea of just like taking someone's performance and then scoring them according to how they compare to others Um it still is to me questionable because I'm like, okay, well, again, like how are we to know what is all behind that performance on that day at that specific time? And if you gave people all the things that would help them to improve their score, would it improve their score? A lot of research into IQ testing and intelligence testing says, yes, it does. You can bump up people's scores, even like a whole bracket from like, you know, low intelligence to average or from average to high, you know, you can bump it up just by giving people better nutrition, a safer place to live, um, even stereotypes play into it, like what people think they're, how well they think they're going to do. And that's based on like all kinds of stereotypes about what they look like and, you know, how smart they're supposed to be as a group of people. Right. So, yeah. It kind of um, reminds me of sort of the Nazis theory or Hitler's theory of the master race. It's like we're going to, that's just an extreme version. But the other guy that created this IQ test, his theory was pretty much in line with that, with what Hitler was doing as well. But he didn't go and kill, I think, millions and millions of people in the process. But I think Hitler probably did research. Hitler was, um, he was a, I hate to say the word, he was educated in, in mm -hmm. a lot of things. And because of that, he knew what he wanted. And unfortunately, a lot of people were blind to those real facts and went along with his ideology and his agenda. And it kind of also reminds me of um, Charles Darwin. I think it was him that came up with the strongest shall survive or that, that sort of line of thinking. So if you have a yeah, Herbert Spencer was a person who was who was um, a, a 
a great thinker of his time and he came up with survival of the fittest. Yeah. Right. And Charles Darwin loved it. You know, he took that and he was like, yes, this is really a good, um, a good explanation of what I'm seeing here. So yes, he supported that idea of survival of the fittest. Right. Which is pretty much why I think we just got a, a sort of, like you were saying, a massage version of it in today's society, because as you look at it, higher in higher people that score on like people that score higher on the IQ tests are end up with these higher paying jobs that we've created in society. So they end up getting more opportunity, more money, and which just creates this um, higher status within society. If you're smarter than say uh, someone that didn't go to university, according to an IQ test, then society looks at that more positively, which I think is is wrong. Right. It's like, it's basically saying, okay, if you perform well on this test, we're going to give you a leg up. And then if you, per, you know, if you get the leg up here, you're going to get another leg up next. Next, every time that we're going to judge you and, and push, push you somewhere, you know, you're going to get more legs up. And that's that's exactly what happens. It's like, Um, One of my students was telling me about how her first test came at three as she was trying to get into the public preschool, which is not available to all people in the United States. There are very few public preschools. There's only I mean, it's mostly just private preschools. And so she she tested high and got into this public preschool and then um, and that gave her like, you know, an extra year or two of um, of education before going to the elementary school. So she was able to go to uh, to test then into a better elementary school that had a gifted program. And then, you know, she was basically moved every single time there was an opportunity to get into the next like higher quality form of curriculum or advanced, whatever, you know, she would get that and she would make her way up, 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 up. And meanwhile, people in her community were just, you know, never got to go to the public school, never got to. And just the fact that in the U S that this is like the public system is really unfortunate because, you know, it just favors people who, um, who have the means to, you know, get the, the nutrition they need to get the sleep they need to feel safe and to have no distractions and to have help with their homework and, and be taught how to read and how to count and how to do math at home and all of the things that I do with my children, but you know, that weren't done with me, you know? So, um, yeah, I think that it's really an unfair kind of system that we have. I think even, a language behind calling something the school for the gifted, right? Like gifted, gifted in what? <laughs> Just yeah. because they scored highly on on an IQ test. I mean, they could be, and, and here's another thing, another question I've always wondered, like does the kid know that they are, quote, more smarter than somebody else? Or is that just someone like a, an adult telling them, Hey, you're gifted because you scored highly on this test. So it makes them feel good and gives them a little bit more confidence. You think? 
Yeah. I mean, well, for me, when I finally tested into my own school's gifted um, curriculum, you know, it's, it was just like, from then on, not just my friends, but also my, I mean, my classmates, but also the teachers would call me gifted and they would talk about me. Um, there's like smartest kid in the class. Oh, you're the smartest kid. Every single class. It was like, you're the smart one. There's only three of you, you know? (laughs) So, um, you're, you're the smart ones. And so it was just like, okay. And for me, I just like, I formed my identity around that because I was like, okay. And especially because I was already facing all kinds of, um, you know, unfortunately I was facing bullying and negative stuff around, you know, being, um, Southeast Asian and stuff like that. And so, um, and being mixed and, uh, it was just like, um, I, for me, it was like a, an escape in a sense, you know, to just identify with the good parts, the parts that people liked about me. So I'm like, Oh, you know, then I'll just be the smart kid and I'm going to be the smartest kid. And here I go. I'm just going to be, so I'm going to outsmart the whole entire world. And, um, and I really felt like, like I was, you know, I was winning by, by making myself into this academic robot. <laughs> Whereas there was so much going on in my household that I needed to to talk to someone about and that there was, you know, there was no attention to the, um, the social emotional piece of it. Right. Um, and in other, um, other countries where they have a longer span of time focused on social emotional learning, um, Scandinavian countries and other countries where there's like, you know, a delay, well, we call it a delay, but like for them, it's just like, makes sense. You know, you just don't start the academics until a little bit later. Um, I think that there's more of an opportunity to find out if a kid needs help. Right. Um, and yeah. And I feel like the, unfortunately there was just also within that community, that immigrant community I grew up in, because education was so highly valued, it was, there wasn't an enough attention from our parents to the social emotional piece because they were like, oh, well, if you're doing great in school, then there must be no problems. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that anybody talked to me about my dad's addiction besides my mom in a complaining kind of form, you know? <laughs> um, and and yet, like that was so definitive of my of my everyday experience, you know. It just sounds like a limiting idea at the same time, because you're pretty much basing a person's worth on whether or not they are quote gifted or not, and you make them feel even more special, which makes the child obviously think that they are different in a good way. But then, because they feel different. They don't know really how to react around other kids. And it goes the same way with kids that don't feel like they are gifted too. They don't know how to act around, say, someone that is called the smartest kid in the room. It's like, I feel too nervous to go up to them because they're too smart for me to actually hold a conversation with them. So it's like we're creating this society of young people that... Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh attaching these ideas and these beliefs to their identity, but yet they're struggling even more and they, they can't speak up about it because say, for example, someone says you're super intelligent, but that means, okay, fantastic. I'm super intelligent, but because I'm struggling in, if I struggle, God forbid that I, I struggle, I can't because I'm too intelligent. I've got to deal with this on my own. I can't speak to somebody else. What would happen if I do mention that I'm struggling with something? I'm, I'm meant to have all this figured out. That's exactly. the sort of narrative that is, quote, being created for a young person. And it can go the other way as well with someone that has been told they aren't intelligent. You know, it's backwards. <laughs> it really is. It's against each other. And I see it happening for my kids already because, you know, I have kids in – um, the public school system for the first time this, you know, this year has been the first time that I've had anyone in the, um, in the mainstream education system. And they are my twins. They, you know, they're already kind of getting that smart kids kind of, you know, buzz about them. Not like, I mean, and I'm, there are a lot of kids who get that buzz about them at the school because the school is, um, you know, we moved to this place that has these great public schools. So they're like, you know, really, um, and also they're very focused on social and emotional learning and everything, but still there's this, this almost like, um, subliminal way that it just happens, you know? And so, um, because they, we've spent so much more time than, other people with them, like physically present with them. Uh, I am, and I'm a writer. I spend most of my time at home writing. And if I do research, you know, I can do a lot of research online. And, um, and if I travel for it, you know, it's like, there are just, I mean, basically I'm mostly present with my kids. If they were at home, I was at home. Um, and, um, my husband is a, a musician, a sound designer, a composer. So he also can do most things at home. And when he would go to perform, uh, he would, it would be after they were asleep, you know? So it's like, we've been in the house, we've been like doing all of these activities, projects, reading everything, you know, it's like the other kids don't have that. Um, even, uh, I mean, we're definitely not the most, we're, we're not the most affluent people in our, in our community. We're like on the lower end of things over here, but, um, but, but still a lot of the, the parents who are, you know, 
more like the standard here are they work a lot of hours. Even those who worked remote during the pandemic were working from home in an office, a home office away, right? And so it's like, we've had so much time with our kids to like really like help them with their learning. And and so, and the other thing is that they, we've got three kids, three boys, they're almost the exact same age. It's almost like having triplets. It's like having a mini classroom, you know? So it's just like, you know, they're always learning from each other and pushing each other and stuff like that. So I'm just saying that, that in that sense, they've been so privileged and I don't know anyone who has that same kind of like focused parent parental energy and all of that stuff. And so, um, so it's just not fair to pop, to posit them as like these, you know, the smart kids, you know, in the class or in the school or whatever, because they're just the ones who got that chance. I remember when I was younger, so I had to be homeschooled because I wasn't exactly smart enough and mature enough to enter into a school environment. And I remember struggling with math, with science, and feeling an enormous amount of pressure when it would come and anxiety that came as a result of having to succeed and get good grades in exams. Like, I'm not exactly sure where the pressure came that I put on myself. Like, I know there's a start where it actually began, but I think I just wanted to be, if I had a level of intelligence for myself, that would make me feel good. But then also I get validation from my classmates. So I wouldn't be stupid. I didn't want to be classed as stupid. I wanted to be someone that was smart because the smart people in my class were sort of praised. You know what I mean? So that happened for, and I went to a small conservative Christian school too. So the whole environment there was still prevalent, which is amazing. It it only gets even more heightened in public schools, I've I've noticed. Uh, But then I... I sort of have now, as I get older and as my brain develops and as life sort of unfolds for me and doing this show, I find myself being more curious and more fascinated than I was. I mean, I was really curious and really fascinated when I was a kid, but I guess I was more nervous and more afraid to seek out ideas and seek out questions because I always cared too much about what other people thought of me and the way I articulated certain things. But now as an adult, I'm like, so what? <laughs> it's it's okay. But that's the sort of level of education that we need to be telling kids that it's all right. That you're not your identity or your level of intelligence should not be ever based on an exam. Yeah. It's not, it's it's like that it should never learning should never be about an outcome ever a score some kind of you know milestone endpoint whatever you want to call it it's like it shouldn't be about achievement like the achievement yeah. it should be about the curiosity that that spark it's not the later part it's it's the the spark it's like being able to to be excited and stay excited and I 
feel that with my kids. I also feel that with my students, you know, I'm just like, this isn't me giving them, cramming some data into them, into their brains and then trying to like trick them with some gotcha questions, you know, to like mess them up and then show them and then make a curve of, of how everyone performed and then tell them, well, you know, sorry, you could, you could never have, have been at the, the, um, high, high scoring, high performing tail because you, because by definition you were going to be somewhere in like most of the people are going to be somewhere in the middle. Right. So, um, and yeah. And it's just like learning is about, that's why I talk about actually intelligence being about learning, learning from your environment, seizing that moment, seizing the learning moment and like taking something, taking that opportunity. And as a teacher, I, and as a parent, like, I just feel like that's what I want for my learners. I want them to feel that curiosity, get passionate about it and embrace that feeling and continue on with it. And I don't care what the data is. Like, I don't care what they choose to, to focus on. It should actually change. It shouldn't be the same thing all the time. That would be like, why? I just don't know why you would do that. Um, in fact, I feel like, like the more you can learn about, the more it helps you to be able to do any job that you can imagine. But like, that's even if we were just saying like, we care about them getting jobs, which is depressing. If that's what all we care about is like, I don't care if you're a good person. I just care that you get a job and like, yeah. you know, them perform well at that job, you know, so that you could make some money or something. It's like, yuck. I hope that that's not the world that we're continuing to to live by, you know, but that's, that's how it's been. It's definitely been that way. You know, your, your experience, my experience, you know, my students who are, um, you know, probably like a lot of people I'm talking to are about, I was saying 17, 18 years old. That's around the 19 is like older, older end of, of the kind of students that I've been teaching in the university. And so it's like, yeah, teens are telling me this stuff is still going this way of like, you know, get out of here, get a job and perform and, you know, make money and all of that. It's just like, it's so, so sad to me. We've got the, they call it the ATAR system here in, here in Australia. So mm -hmm. pretty much you've got to do in Sydney, you have to do the, the HSC. So it's series of exams. You got to perform well and they basically take your exam as well as your cohort's exam and they give you an average. So it doesn't matter if you did really, really well in your exams, then your average is usually determined based around how your other classmates did. So your other classmates have got to do really, really well as well for you to get an even better grade too, which is a dumb system <laughs> but that's the way that's the way it is um mm -hmm. unfortunately and i remember feeling like getting my atar result it not wasn't exactly the best result i felt so dumb i'm like what my life's over mm -hmm. you know because 
I was what I wanted to do, I couldn't now do because I didn't have the the grade to be able to do it. And sure, they told me, you know what, there's other pathways for you to get into university and study the thing that you want to study. But then I just felt dumb because I didn't actually get it the first time. Now I've got to take all these other different directions and pathways to get to the same degree that I could have gotten into before. But an exam told me that I wasn't smart enough to get into it. So who's to say that I, I, it was business. And I mean, why do you need an ATAR of 90 something or 80 something to get into a business degree? But that's the way that it is. I mean, I understand. I'll tell you why. There's a reason. It's because they don't have a lot of spots. And the reason, then you have why don't they have a lot of spots? It's because they don't believe that everybody deserves that education. Yeah. Smarter, the better. We'll we'll have smart business people to make us more money. (laughs) Yeah. if If they thought like in in Finland or Denmark or wherever they give you free graduate education and free undergraduate education, et cetera. I mean, I've met, I've had friends who have gone back for another graduate degree. It was free again. You know, it's like, they're like, Oh yeah, I'm really good at this thing I do, but I think I'm getting more passionate about this other thing. And I want to go back and do this other thing. They don't have this thing of like, Oh man, I, I could never change course. You know, I'm already like 25 years old or I'm already 30 years old or 35 years old. It's like, they don't, they don't have that. Like, like I can't, it's like, sure I can, because my country thinks that we all can, right? Like, it's not like, Oh, you, you got in, you know, you're at that high tail end of the curve. And so only you can do, do this stuff. It's more like, sure, you want to do it? Let's do it. Right. And that's why their literacy rates, their financial literacy rates, their, you know, all of their, um, you know, their math literacy, all of like scientific literacy, it's all like off the charts, right? Because everybody gets that education if they want it. Right. So that part of it is just so also, you know, disturbing and heartbreaking to me is just that that's how it works here in the U.S. too. It's just we've only got a few spots, only the cream of the crop and don't even bother applying. And I teach at a public school. It's one of the biggest public schools in the country. And we the admissions process is just so 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 sad to see like okay we're going to accept like five people from this applicant pool of like hundreds of people you know it's like why would the public school that's supposed to be one of the biggest in the whole country only accept five people in this in in you know this um discipline it's just crazy to me um but that's because we don't think that everybody can go. We think we can only, you know, have a handful of people. And so out of hundreds of people, there's going to be a handful of people who will get that education and no more than that. And, and the whole um, scholarship program too. That's another, not oh, another few yeah. entirely. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's also like, I wonder if it's more because the American education system 
like to go to university and study at a university, it's just crazy. You end up in so much debt and they yeah. expect you to live in society, which is another reason why they're like, well, if you've got rich parents that can pay for you, we're going to give you more access. Yeah. Like, it's similar here in Australia. Like the government gives us what they call the hex debt. So it's a debt, but you got to pay it off eventually, but they pay for you to have a level of education uh, to some degree, but you've got to be an Australian citizen in order to get that hex debt. And you've got to be able to show the government that you are able to pay this off eventually. So that's by getting a job and working your backside off by getting into debt to the government. So you want to do well. You want to do the best that you possibly can. But then again, the education system wants you to be put into a box. Mm-hmm. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way you're supposed to think and behave and act while you're here. You can't have external lines of thought because God forbid that that happens. <laughs> Uh, we don't like you if you have that. We want you to go this way. You can't have a different thought process, you know. And I'm I'm currently studying to be a therapist. And the only reason why I'm doing that is so that I can get a piece of paper to say that I'm qualified to do that. And yet I've got, I've had so many actual qualified therapists before I even decided to study who all told me, Jay, have you thought about becoming a therapist? That wasn't a coincidence. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. trying to be all proud and arrogant here, but they obviously saw something to some degree. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. It 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 definitely does. And I mean, just the thought of people wanting to do that and to help other people and being prevented from doing that because there are people out there who want to help other people whether it's with therapy or whether it's with you know research psychology or whether it's with um with you know studying the education system and fixing education and things like that it's like there's so many people who want to do that and who are going to be prevented from living out their dreams because of a score or because of their pathway getting, you know, wonky because, because the system prevented them from even just being on a a straight path towards those dreams in the first place. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I think that it makes complete sense and it's just, it's, it's something that we have to change. I really, really want us to change these things before my kids get into the whole college game, you know, or whatever that, whatever ends up being in the, you know, in the future. I really, really, really want us to change these things and there's systemic issues, you know, but I mean, part of it is that we have this, um, this, broken cultural narrative around intelligence and it still continues to be IQ genetics, like all, you know, genetic lottery, all of this stuff. And, um, and so 
we have to fix that as well. So it's like, it's both parts. It's the system and it's the narratives behind the system or that uphold the system, right? So it's got those two pieces of it. Having said all this, how about for those people that say, well, you know what, I want to be a doctor. And in order for me to be a doctor, I've got to go and research and I've got to do the exams. I want someone that is highly qualified to be able to do this because they've got my life on the line. Is, is that system okay or should we change it to something else in that no, line of thinking? I don't have a problem with education. I work in education. I believe in education and I actually want people to get more of it. So it's more about access. That's the part I have a problem with. I I want more people to have access to what my kids got access to and to what, um, and what, uh, you are having access to now that you're in the program and what I, can give people access to if they happen to get into my program, right? So, um, and part of that is just having people who value you for the person and the valuable person that you are, right? And seeing you as being worthy and seeing you as being full of potential. And even if you are neurodivergent, working with you, working with you to make it so that you can achieve the, um, the, you know, parts of attain the parts of the curriculum that you need in order to gain that skill set, Right. So we're talking about empowering people to do jobs where they need specific skill sets and they need a certain amount of information. And, you know, so it's like, if somebody is neurodivergent, do they deserve to be just ousted from the whole entire profession or do we need to as educators and as the system of education make sure that they get to realize their dreams because they're not less valuable they just think differently than the person who passes the test the first time right so i just want more access to the education yes there are specialty skills and there are specialty um bodies of knowledge and um and i don't And no, they should not be only given to specialty people, you know, specialty brains or something like that. It's just like, um, it's, it's just really, I, I, and I feel, I feel so, so sad for a lot of my friends who didn't make it into like, make it through high school, you know, over here, it's like high school is supposed to be kind of a given college is not a given, but high school is supposed to be. And I, and yet I had friends who, um, who didn't make it through freshman year of high school, you know, because of things going on in their lives and things like addiction and parents or parental addiction, abuse, all kinds of things going on. And, um, and then people getting to college, you know, um, and not making it through college or not making it through fresh, fresh through freshman year of college or not making it at all through. Um, and, you know, and because of these problems going on in their lives. Yeah. Um, I think that we don't, we don't value each other. We don't value children. We don't value ourselves enough. Yeah. So it's basically 
not having it about this person is just a number. We're going to give this person the dignity that they deserve. They are a human being, being able to study. We're going to give them as many opportunities as we can and more access to help and to support and, to support and those sort of things. I think that's, that's key and I, I love that whole idea because if someone wants to be a doctor but yet they can't pass a certain exam, then, hey, give them a chance. See what they can do. There's another way we can help them. Give There's also different uh, learning abilities. It's not just an exam, right? Like we've got to help young people a bit more. But I also wanted to ask you about this. This is something that I've been thinking about recently. And I, I always say, experience will be the best teacher in life. Is that something that you agree with or disagree with? Definitely. I think that experience is, is the best teacher. And uh, that's one of the things I actually write about in um, Rethinking Intelligence. I write about learning styles and not, I don't use the, the term styles, but I talk about uh a kind of pedagogy that I think is more effective for learning. And that is connected learning or collaborative learning. It's yep. where you learn whatever the information that you're supposed to get or the skill set. you learn it with others and in a, some kind of relationship to them. And usually it's around solving a social problem, solving a community problem. Right. And so you can do it at the, uh, toddler level with my kids where you just have them create some sort of um, mini microcosm kind of community relationship between them and you ask them to solve a problem together and then through that they have to read something or they have to count something you know this kind of thing or they have to like give something to each other and figure out how to like save so many and give so many and that kind of thing um and then at the uh, adult level in adult education, uh, you know, you basically set the students on a problem, solving a problem. And uh, in the medical school, you know, in UCSF that I used to teach at, it would be like the problem would be some kind of medical case, a case study, right? Like somebody's presenting with these symptoms and we have to figure out all the stuff around them to like figure out what's going on. And then if you're talking about, you know, in my, um, my medical sociology classes that I teach, my mental health class, you know, my mental illness class, um, you know, it's more like looking at a specific disorder and then trying to, you know, again, work backwards to figure out, but doing it as a group and doing it about some issue that the students can sink their teeth into. And so this is the kind of learning that I think is much more effective. And when you are, you know, yourself, you're just like going through and learning things. If you can find a way to make it collaborative, I think that that's even going to help secure, you know, to like really like burn that info into your brain and burn those skills into your brain. So collaborative, interactive learning is to me is much more helpful than solo atomized, individualized kind of learning. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, having people sort of bounce ideas off each other is always good. So you can learn what another person thinks about something 
as opposed to just you thinking about the one thing all the time. That's yeah, that's cool. So your new book is called Rethinking Intelligence. I want to give people sort of a, a better understanding of what's actually within the book so they can sort of get excited. I'm already excited about it uh, just from this conversation, but are you able to give people a sort of brief overview and description of what they can expect when they read the book? Definitely. So I I kind of have the book um, in three parts. The first part is really focused on understanding the science that's out there today. I do a little bit of um, kind of going back into history and understanding where we got this idea of IQ, our modern idea, our contemporary idea, I should say, of of intelligence based on IQ. Um, And I kind of debunk that science and show how it's been debunked for, you know, quite a long time now. And yet um, today we still have these uh, genomic studies that try to search for kind of genetic culprits associated with our kind of causal factors that could tell us like, oh, this person has this this um, genetic variant and so they might be smarter or this person has this combination of these genetic variants and so they'll probably get further along in school and all of that kind of stuff. And I talk about why we need to be wary of those studies and why we need to be really careful in, um, you know, in our way of just uh, it's it's natural for us to be excited about genetic research and it's natural for us to want to know about our own genes and our own genomes and everything. But um, in that first section, I also talk about this thing um, we call epigen- the epigenome, epigenetics, which is um, the parts of our genome that are slightly modified um, and they basically tell our genes whether they should express and turn on essentially, or stay silent and turn and stay off basically. Um, So there's this part where I talk about how that part of our, um, of our DNA code um, is, is always changing with regard to the quality of our environments. And that's quality of sleep, quality of nutrition, quality of water, air, everything, you know, and stress. So I spend some time on stress and I talk about how toxic stress is for us. And then I spend the next part of the book just focusing on strategies that can help us improve our mental acuity and our clarity of mind um, and there are strategies that, like what I was talking about earlier, connected learning, um, like um, mindfulness practice, things like that, where um, where there are strategies that don't cost anything. There are strategies that don't um, require going to a special school or doing a special thing. You know, it's just like, and definitely they're not strategies where you have to like go buy some kind of DNA um test and find out and then blah, 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 do all this stuff. Right. So, um, so that's what the second part of the book is. And then the last part, I just talk about the education system and a lot of the issues we've been talking about. So I just want to give people a a sense of how, um, how our communities need to be structured differently in order for us to get the full, uh, potential, you know, to get the most out of ourselves, right. Our, 
our, because of this thing I was talking about, the epigenome, because our DNA is responsive to our environments and the quality of our environments and stress and the stress of testing, you know, even just that, like that's so bad for, for our, our own bodies. Um, we, you know, our genomes give us the basic architecture to do all the thinking we need to do, to do all that learning, to do all that knowing, to do all that interacting, that beautiful stuff that we do. Um, so, but can we do it if we're stressed out? Nope. You know, are our genes expressing themselves the way that they're supposed to, um, turning on, doing the work that they're supposed to do for us? No. So, you know, that's what the book in a nutshell is, you know, trying to get us to that point where we can see that if we think of intelligence as a process, as a kind of awareness of the potential to learn and as and if we change our system so that everybody can access that and can do that, then we will have a much better quality of life as individuals and a much better society. And we didn't even touch on the whole genetics and genome aspect of things, which is something that you are very, very familiar with. Yeah. Perhaps that's for another conversation. Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Rena, for everything. Where do you want people to con connect with you, learn more about you, get a copy of the book? Um, you can get a copy from HarperCollins uh, website for the book. Um, you could also go on Amazon. I don't know in different countries what, you know, where, to, but it's, uh, the book is actually being translated into different languages as well. So, you know, there will be copies coming, you know, to shelf, bookshelves near you. Um, and uh, you can, but yeah, HarperCollins has, has the um, the book there for purchase. And um, my website is drrenabliss.com. So drrenabliss.com is where you can find more about me. I'm on all the socials. You can find me on TikTok. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram, um, whatever, Facebook, whatever your favorite you know, method of, of socialing, you know, you can find me there. So yeah. And I really had a wonderful time talking to you. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. That's just going to boost my ego for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> I do appreciate that, but I really did enjoy this conversation as well. Always love geeking out on certain topics, especially like this. Um, and I could have geeked out even more if we had talked about the whole genetics aspect of things but definitely going to have you back on at a later date to discuss that side of things but dr rena thank you so much for your time today your wisdom your advice and your stories and for joining me today on the storybox podcast thank you so much Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 